Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, August 7th, 2021. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Here we are going to present part 47 of TruthVid's 100 Proofs That the Israelites Were White, and we have our friend here with us once again. In our last presentation in the series, we discussed the apparent fulfillment of the blessings upon the tribes of Dan, Asher, Zebulun, Naphtali, in relation to the blessings which the tribes had received from Jacob and Moses. We had already discussed Judah and Levi. Now we shall discuss the sons of Joseph, Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin, although I think after I wrote this, Benjamin's going to have to wait until next week. We cannot illustrate the fulfillment of all of the blessings for every one of the 12 tribes. And if we tried, we would be forced into much conjecture. Some of the blessings, the interpretations of their fulfillment are subjective. And some blessings, their fulfillment may even be difficult to notice. How do you gauge the blessing that Asher shall dip his foot in oil? That That's, I, I mean, we did last week, but it can be quite subjective. We can make the assertion that if we see plain fulfillments of some aspects of the blessings for at least many of the tribes, then we can be certain that all of the blessings have been realized, have been fulfilled, and shall continue to be fulfilled as our history or our walk through the course of history progresses. Hello, Truthfids. Thank you for being here. Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think this is a, a fascinating proof because this is one um, that kind of led into the, the British Israel thing, right? The whole... Um, British Empire, and then and then some started to go into uh, America, Christian identity. But it's great to just have a fresh, raw look at it and, and kind of start anew and just show that what we can actually prove, uh, especially as there were a lot of Jews infiltrating Brit British Israel and leading them all astray, and, and, you know, a lot of crazy novels started to be introduced. So, so here we can just look what we can actually prove, and, and it all just shows generally that essentially the europeans must be the children of israel right i mean if you can prove even one tribe or two then surely all the other tribes must look exactly the same be the same people and generally be in the same vicinity europe right bill precisely and and towards the end of the series and and it's going to be difficult to do in audio right but towards the end of the series and and in fact coming up perhaps sooner than that, we have archaeological evidence that the Israelites were white from the Judeans of the 2nd, 3rd, 4th centuries AD in, in their synagogue paintings and descriptions and paintings of themselves and, and their forebears. If we prove, and, and all these people have to be of the same race, if we prove that some of them were white, they all had to be white. That's absolutely correct because of the nature of the scriptures and, and their own belief systems 
their own thoughts and, and considerations of themselves and what happened in, in their punishment every time they mixed with other races, even other white races, they were punished for it. So what we have to know that if one or two of these tribes can be identified as white, then they all must have been white. It's, it is. It's that simple. That there should be no way around that. We can't assume that the tribe of Dan were white and that the other 11 tribes were mixed-race Arabs. The prohibitions against mixing, against fornication, which we see throughout Scripture. Now, of course, some of them did commit fornication, but those people that committed fornication are basically no longer white. <laughs> they look like mixed-race Arabs, and the Jews are from among those. Those Edomite Jews who who are probably mixed with a fair percentage of, of the Judeans, the Judeans of the time of Christ and later, who, who mixed their race with the Edomites rather freely in the time of Flavius Josephus, who, who's a good example of the attitudes they had towards the Edomites. But the Edomites were cursed and they are the Jews of today, they're not truly white because they have a certain amount of Arab blood in them. It might be a very small percentage. The fact that most Jews look white by itself should prove that the Israelites are white. The fact that Arabs exist, that these mixed races exist, and the word Arab clearly means mixed in Hebrew and to grow dark, the fact that Arabs exist should tell people, should inform us by itself, that those lands were formerly white. And look at what's happening in cities today, where New York City was at one time all white, and Boston, Massachusetts was at one time all white, but now there are these immigrants that have caused the populations to become dark. How do we not see that that pattern, it, it's not new. It's not something that just happened this past century. It's been going on in various parts of the world for, for millennium. Look at India and the caste system that didn't work for them, that was supposed to keep the upper castes white and, and keep them separated from the Dravidians and the lower castes and some castes that were already mixed. So the caste system didn't work in India. It didn't keep the upper castes white because they're, they're not white today, and that's pretty obvious that they're not white. Yet we're still called Indo-European people because at one time we were in Asia and in and around India and we're white. That's why we're called Indo-Europeans. Kind begets kind. As long as you marry only into your own kind, your physical features are never going to change. That's a digression. I don't know if you have anything to say before we proceed. Well, yeah, it just shows you that, that there is no... Um 
you know way you can exist with them in in a blended society always leads to death right in genesis that's essentially what yahweh tells you and you know there's lots of ways you can describe how it means you know the genetics that society you know that the cities crumble everything just goes goes to hell basically right and and there's only one way that's yahweh's way it should be clear uh, and people should realize that right i was a few years ago there was a news item and it was an earthquake in iran and and there are some modern cities in the Middle East and in, in the Near East, in Iran, and especially in Arabia. But all the modern cities were built recently with oil money, and they hire mostly German engineering firms to come in and build their cities. And they spend all this billions of dollars in oil money on building these cities. And Westerners see that and they imagine that these people that inhabit these cities are an advanced, intelligent people. But that's not true. They just have a lot of oil money and their chieftains build themselves these cities. But they use Western engineering and Western engineers to do it. And I remember this news item a few years ago about how this 2,000-year-old city in Iran was destroyed by an earthquake. And that is how most of them actually live in cities that were built 2,000 years ago, or at least hundreds of years ago. And they're still living in them in decay in cities that have no modern conveniences not even any modern buildings. And I'm thinking to myself, why don't people in the West see this and wonder why Iranians are living in a 2,000-year-old city? Why is it 2,000 years old? Why hasn't it been updated and, and modernized? But if it's not politically convenient for a particular regional chieftain tribal chieftain to modernize something it's never going to get modernized they'd rather rebuild something and and build it new and hire west they have to hire westerners to do it because they simply don't have the skills themselves when they do have engineers those engineers were trained with western technology with technology that was developed in europe so if we really look at these these supposed nations like Saudi Arabia and Egypt. Look at the state of Egypt when Napoleon's troops invaded Egypt in in the last decades of the 18th century. It was backwards. They had nothing. It was full of decay. It's been modernized with Western technology since then, in the last hundred years perhaps. But Egypt is a well, I think it was Donald Trump called it a shithole country. He he made references to shithole countries, and that's what they are. Without Western intervention, that's all they would be. And the Ganges River in India is the filthiest sewer in the world. And there's human bodies decomposing, animal bodies decomposing in the river. They dump all of their trash and their sewerage in this river. But the Indians still consider it a holy river and bathe in its waters as much as they can. 
it's incredible how backwards they are. We're going to get a taste of it in the West as our own cities begin to decay because they are now filled with these people, with these same people. Yeah, you'd think that all they'd do is um, immediately use the oil money, set up universities, education, uh, you know, and start training all their people. And, and that would be it. They would be able to go and build a vast civilization. But but they just can't. They have to rely on us, you know, use the money, bring, bring us over, let us build it for them and then try to live there. Right. And, and most of the businesses there are just tourists on Westerners coming over and spending money, even like a basic uh, civilization, you know, economy. They can't even have that themselves. Right. Right. It's incredible. But we don't see it. We don't see it because we're blinded by what we see in advertising, on television. There are all kinds of um, tourist industries in South America, and, and they actually warn people, don't go off the tourist path because you'll be robbed and raped and, and whatever in Brazil, places like that, Mexico. It, it's fine to go to the, the nice little enclave of hotels and shops and, and a beach, but when you go off the beaten path, you're going to be in a lot of trouble because the locals are going to rape and rob and pillage you or, or murder you or whatever and sell you in human trafficking, whatever, depending on <laughs> how appealing you are. And, and you're done. You can't go off the beaten, beaten path. You can't go outside of the regular tourist areas in any of those places. And I'm sure it would be. Yeah, no they'll different. actually have it fenced off. The, and, the money from the tourism will pay for security teams to patrol and keep it safe. Right. But as the West starts to crumble and tourism goes down, we'll we'll see what happens to those places. Right. They'll they'll just turn back into hellholes again very quickly. Absolutely. They'll be reassimilated into the local economy. <laughs> We must warn, before proceeding, against trying to identify all of the tribes of ancient Israel with modern tribes or nations of Europe today solely by the nature of certain features of their blessings. For that reason, we will not discuss every tribe in relation to these blessings. In our last podcast, we mentioned the blessings of Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali in relation to the history of the Phoenicians. But other tribes may well have been blessed through that same history. For example, Moses had blessed Zebulun and Issachar together and said, They shall suck of the abundance of the seas and of the treasures hid in the sand. So even though there is little evidence convincing us to connect Issachar to the Phoenicians in history or in scripture, it is apparent that arguments can be made for such a connection in scripture. But the blessing of Jacob for Issachar, which is in Genesis chapter 49, says that Issachar is a strong ass couching between two burdens. And he saw that rest was good, and the land that it was pleasant, and bowed his shoulder to bear, and became a servant to tribute. 
It, this is interpreted to have been fulfilled in ancient Palestine. Issachar was never under tribute during the period of the kingdom unless all of Israel was under tribute. In the book of Judges, there, there are times when all of Israel was under tribute to other nations, the Philistines, the, the Moabites, and that would render the blessing meaningless as it refers to something which affected all of Israel. We would prefer to look for a fulfillment that is peculiar to Issachar apart from the rest of Israel. But how can we really see the fulfillment of such a prophecy? At diverse times, many European tribes were under tribute to others, some, sometimes in ways which are not so obvious. Many of the tribes of Europe were subjects of Rome, so they were tributaries to Rome. According to certain ancient histories, the Goths, Alans, and other Germanic tribes were tributaries to the Huns for nearly a hundred years in the 4th and 5th centuries. Later, during the time of the Holy Roman Empire, most of Europe was under control of certain Germanic kings and their families. So most European nations were technically under tribute to those kings. If, if, you're, if you're in Switzerland and you're Swiss, say you're a, French, a Frenchman in Switzerland, you, you're a, Franco, a Francophone in Switzerland... So you're actually a Frank, or perhaps one of, a Gaul, or one of the other tribes of France, and you're in Switzerland, and you and your family and your kinsmen are living under an Austrian emperor, you're basically paying tribute to that Austrian emperor. You're not working for the betterment of your own tribe only. You're, you're paying taxes and, and duties to the Austrian emperor who's a foreigner. He's an alien. So you're under tribute. When there's an emperor, all the subject nations are basically under tribute. So later, during the time of the Holy Roman Empire, most of Europe was under tribute. So, for example... The longest-running dynasty which ruled the empire over its thousand-year duration was the House of Habsburg. And in reality, every non-Austrian nation was under a form of tribute to the Habsburgs for the 300 years during which they had ruled the empire. Yet from any of this history, it is not plausible to identify Issachar or the other tribes brought into the captivities with any particular European tribe or nation. Furthermore, it must be said that last week we really only scratched the surface of the history of the ancient Phoenicians. But in weeks prior, and in relation to other blessings, we mentioned Miletus in Caria, Calicia, and the other Phoenician settlements and migrations from those places westward into Ireland and Britain. So the history of the Phoenicians is, is a lot more extensive than what we had the opportunity to talk about in one program last week, in one presentation. Understanding that Phoenicians were Israelites is, I believe, the single greatest step, in my opinion, to understanding how all the covenants and promises of God were fulfilled in antiquity as well as in modern times.
The next greatest step is to understand that the Sake, the Cimmerians, the Scythians, were actually Israelites. Now we shall try to make a similar example of Ephraim and Manasseh, who were prophesied to be a great nation and a company of nations. I don't know if you have anything you'd like to add to that or comment on. Yeah, I hope to start working on some maps. Um, to, to You know, maps are hard to make, but hopefully I can do it and, and really start to show the Phoenician migrations because I think visual images, as they say, right, a picture is worth a thousand words. It really helps people understand, like, where Miletus is, where Carrier, you, you know, in Anatolia, Asia Minor, and, and all the, like, colonizations. So hopefully I can do that. And, um, you, you know, with Isakars, some people have identified that uh, with, with, like, East Europe and, and said that it's in between the West and the East. But as you said, it's very subjective and, you, you know, you can pretty much apply that to anywhere, right? And it's really hard to prove something like that. Right, Bill? Exactly. At, at various times in history, there were a lot of Germanic tribes that were subject or, or tributaries to other Germanic tribes or to the Romans, the Visigoths had, had um, started out not really that they tried invading Rome and they couldn't, but they were eventually admitted into portions of the empire in a peaceful manner. And they were basically during that time tributaries to Rome until they decided to rise up and with the other tribes and destroy it. So they were tributaries to Rome. They were tributaries to the Huns as well. The Goths, a, a large segment of the Goths were tributaries to the Huns. Jordanus, the Gothic historian of the, the 7th century or the 6th century, I'm sorry, he despised the Huns. And I believe that he despised them for that reason because the Goths were tributaries of the Huns. But if you read Procopius, the Greek historian who was, he preceded Jordanes by maybe a couple of decades, I think. He, he was just shortly before Jordanes. He had explained that the Huns and the Goths had both come from the Massagetae. They were two different branches of the Massagetae, and the Massagetae had started out in what we know today as Kazakhstan, I believe. They, they started out in the region north of India, Pakistan, and Afghanistan, which is where the Oxus and just Jaxardes river valleys are found. And Today, those river valleys, I think, are called the Sir Daria, and I think the other one's called the Amu Daria, A-M-U, and then a separate word, D-A-R-Y-A. So there's the Sir Daria and Amu Daria rivers. In 19th century British maps, they were the Oxus, O-X-U-S, and Jaxardes. J-A-X-A-R-T-S, T-E-S, Jaxardes rivers. So they had, today we have this trend to use um, local names of local people for rivers and, and mountains and cities. In the 19th century, the British used their own names 
for these places. They didn't care about the local names. But those British names came from more ancient sources and, and usually Greek or Latin sources. It was the ancient Greeks who had identified the Scythians of that region as Masagete. And it was from them that the Goths and the Huns were said by the ancient writers to have derived from those Scythians in that area. Those Scythians in that area were at one time subject to the Persians. They are the Scythians that were subject to the Persians that were probably settled by the Assyrians in on that frontier and had filled up the river valleys north of it over the course of several centuries. So they were settled there by the Assyrians and they were subject to the Persians and they took part in the Persian Wars that they were in Bactria and in Sogdiana at that time, which is which are the lands north of Pakistan and adjacent to India. And they ultimately, large groups of them migrated west into Europe. So the Saxons and, yeah, the, and um, the, the Saxons had had also migrated into Europe from Eurasia. Let me say Eurasia or Central Asia. I'm sorry. Yeah, I was just going to say that you know the Goths were very much like the Germanic tribes in terms of they traveled in carts and you know with their families and they fought and fought. But but as for the Huns, they were all. Um, horse archers right so, so it clearly shows that they were very similar to the Parthians which, which makes me wonder if uh, that they came out of the Parthian Empire went up and they still had that strong military you, you know they had uh, excellent armor excellent arrows so, so they must have you know they couldn't just be um, people would run away they must have come from that empire and still kept the technology and the military and all that because they they were a serious threat to Rome, right? It wasn't just because there were sheer numbers. It was all their tactics and everything that caused havoc to the uh, Roman Empire, right? The Huns. Absolutely. They were a threat to Rome that they actually sacked Rome, I believe, in the 4th century. Eventually, they were settled in what's now in, in portion, at least a portion of what's now known as Hungary, they were excellent archers. They were tall, fair, and white-skinned, according to Procopius. And the Byzantines employed them in rather large numbers in its wars against the Goths as mercenaries, in its wars against the Goths and the Vandals. We, we, the, the modern media and modern academia characterize the Huns with slanders that certain Romans and that Jordanus had used against them and and they accept that to be true and it's not true the Huns were not short and yellow Attila the Hun was not a short yellow squat monster <laughs> they were tall and white and fair and if you look at certain Germanic literature from certain tribes such as the Nibelungen lead which was a product of the Franks originally, the Huns are drawn in, in, in an images of noble character. 
And when I say drawn, I mean in words, right? Not in pictures. That they were drawn as noble characters. They were depicted as noble characters where in the Gothic literature of Jordanes and the Roman literature, they were despised and depicted as short yellow squat monsters. But that's not true. So that that literature is basically anti-Hun propaganda. And when you go read Procopius, who was a Byzantine historian in the time of Justinian, he he didn't he depicted the Huns as if they were of noble character and and tall and fair skinned and great warriors. So we have a diversity of opinions on the Huns, but we have to understand that the Goths and the Romans had biases against the Huns. And they don't deserve those opinions. The Huns don't deserve those biases. It, it's propaganda. Basically, it's propaganda. And yes, they had pretty good co- propaganda in those days too. So, <laughs> the proof of their that the the effectiveness of their propaganda is that the Jews today use that propaganda and continue it in their depictions of the Huns in their movies and in their literature. But it's not true. The Huns were not squat monsters. They were white men and women. Yeah, and just one more quick thing. Uh, Because I've been studying a lot of the history, I noticed in the later years of the Byzantine Empire, when it was starting to crumble, they had to rely on Turk mercenaries. And the Turks used the exact same tactics as the Parthians. They had, uh, you you know, the horse archers where they shoot, run away, shoot. So, so, um, you know, we we spoke briefly about the Turks, but to me that shows that the some of the Parthian Scythians must have went and mingled with these Turk warriors, and the Turks learned the same tactics, right? That the horse archers and all that. Uh, that at least shows you that it all went wrong, like India with the car system. That um, we basically taught the Turks our technology, and and look what happened. They started invading Europe, right? Exactly. That that yes, that they, they had um I actually forget which people, so I don't want to blame anybody. It may have been the Serbs, it may have been the Czechs, I don't remember. But actually one of the nations of Europe had sold cannons to the Turks. And and that's how they took down Constantinople. That was the first time cannons were used against a European city. So they were doing it with Western technology. Yes, that is correct. That and more. While they were organized under one government, by the time of the numbering on the plains of Moab, each of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel were already nations in their own right. This is seen in Deuteronomy chapter 32, and and this passage is not without controversy, and I will explain some of that. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, in the Song of Moses, we read, Rejoice, O ye nations, with, and with is in italics there, his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants, and will render vengeance to his adversaries, and will be merciful unto his land, and to his people. This isn't speaking about Gentiles and Jews. This is speaking about the children of Israel as being many nations. If we believe the scripture, 
every reference from this point forward to the nations of the favor of God would be a reference to these nations, to the nations promised to come of the children of Israel, and not to any other nations. Now, some Bible versions have corrected this verse from the Septuagint. And the traditional Septuagint manuscripts themselves have, O ye heavens, rather than, O ye nations. However, the traditional reading in the Masoretic text, where it says nations, is supported by both Paul of Tarsus, who cites this passage in Romans chapter 15, verse 10, and in a Greek version of Deuteronomy, labeled 4QDEUT, and then another Q in superscript. That's the name of the manuscript or the label used for the particular manuscript, which was found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. So in the Greek version of Deuteronomy found among the Dead Sea Scrolls, it says, Rejoice, O ye nations, not heavens which is the reading of the traditional Septuagint. Paul of Tarsus interpreted this passage to read, Rejoice, O ye nations. His citation of Deuteronomy 32, 43, chapter 32, verse 43, which is found in Romans chapter 15, in verse 10, has nations rather than heavens. And Paul must have also been familiar with at least most of the text of this verse as it appears in the, in the Greek as he had cited another portion of the Septuagint version of this verse, which is not found in the Masoretic text in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6. This verse is a lot longer. This Deuteronomy 32.43 is probably twice as long in the Greek version of the Septuagint. So Paul, even though he he cited a copy that said nations rather than heavens, must have been citing from a Greek version because he cited the rest of the, or, or another portion of the same verse in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6. So Paul's Greek evidently said nations and not heavens. We should accept the version of Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 43, which was accepted and quoted by Paul of Tarsus, as it is also found in the Greek version of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And, and that can be found, if you want an easy place where that can be found in English, you could read the footnote which is on page 193 in the Dead Sea Scrolls Bible, which was by Abeg, Flint, and Ulrich. It, it's, a, it's a copy, it's a translation of all of the biblical manuscripts found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. Because most books on the, of the Dead Sea Scrolls only have the non-biblical manuscripts, if that makes sense. Where Moses had uttered those words, he was speaking within the context of the vengeance of God against all of the ancient enemies of the children of Israel. So the nations 
to which he referred were not non-Israelite nations, but rather they were the nations of the people of God, the future nations which the children of Israel were promised to become. However, nations, as groups of people descended from the same patriarch, are one thing. That word nation in English comes from the Latin word natio, which comes from another Latin word natus, which means born. And and nations, you're a member of a nation by reason of your birth, by the identity of the nation of your parents. You, you can't be a Spaniard and be born in Britain and consider yourself English. That's artificial. That's a construct of today's political situation. It's not real. If you're a Spaniard born of Spanish parents and you're born in Britain, you're a Spaniard by nation. You're not British. That's crazy. <laughs> and a, a, um, a pig born in a horse barn is not a horse. It's a pig <laughs> forever. It's never going to be a horse. So nations as groups of people descended from the same patriarchs are one thing. And countries or regions under a common government, as we perceive the meaning of the word nation, the artificial meaning of the word nation today, that's another thing. While Abraham was promised that his descendants would become many nations, and while that promise was ultimately inherited by Jacob, and its fulfillment became evident in the twelve tribes of his children, there is no promise that those twelve tribes would ever occupy twelve autonomous countries, each represented by their own government and each of them containing citizens exclusively from one of the tribes. There's no promise of that. So, so that prophecy by Moses, it, it, it adds more evidence, you know, there's a ton that Yahweh does, still remembers the enemies and he's going to destroy them all. He hasn't forgotten about the Canaanites and the Edomites and everything they've done, that one day there will be a reckoning, right? Even if we've forgotten. Well, well absolutely. And, and right in Luke chapter 1, it says that Christ was coming to save us from our enemies. And if we'd only believe Christ, we would be saved from our enemies. But we don't believe him. We, we, we believe in this universal Christianity for everybody. So who are the enemies? We can identify the enemies because we believe the scripture. But if we don't believe the scripture, we don't even realize that there are enemies. And if we're, we're Roman Catholics or Eastern Orthodox and we have some specialized priest interpret the language of scripture to actually have the contrary meaning from what it really says, who is the priest working for? He's working for the enemies. And it's the same thing with American denominational pastors. They're working for the enemies. That's why they support Israel. <laughs> They're working for the enemies. In that passage where Paul of Tarsus quoted this verse, Deuteronomy 
he said, now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers. Where the denominational Christian sects actually interpret Christianity in a way that destroys the promises made to the fathers. Paul is insisting that Christ came to confirm those promises. And then they take this word, which means nations, in the very next verse, and they translate it as Gentiles. But it doesn't mean Gentiles. It means nations. And that the nations might glorify God for his mercy. The nations, particular nations, as it is written, for this cause I will confess to thee among the nations and sing unto thy name. And then again he says, rejoice ye nations with his people, meaning the nations of the children of Israel. That's the natural way to interpret that language, where they've constructed this artificial term Gentiles, and they've constructed a false paradigm based on their artificial definition of the term. They've created a false religion by changing a word that means nations into a word with a different definition that means Gentiles. And they define that to mean non-Jewish nations. Their entire construct is artificial. It's not real. It's not what the scripture is saying. Likewise, while it is evident from the revelation of Yahshua Christ and other prophecies that all of the nations of Israel, meaning the 12 tribes, would indeed survive the course of history, there is no promise of nationhood to any of the tribes in the blessings of Jacob or Moses except for Ephraim and Manasseh. So in Genesis chapter 48, where Jacob blessed the younger beyond the elder, we read in part from verse 19, I know it, my son, he's speaking to Joseph, where, where Joseph wanted Jacob to bless the elder first. Jacob said, I know it, my son, I know it. He shall also become a people. And he shall also be great, but truly his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his seed shall become a multitude of nations. So with all of this, it should become evident that it is folly to do as earlier identity Christians had done, to associate each nation of Europe with one peculiar tribe of Israel. That's folly. But it is also evident in the revelation of Yahshua Christ that the children of Israel in later history would consist of nations of people with different tongues. And I'm bringing this up because some British Israel people, British Israel adherents, had early on in, in the life of British Israel, that they claimed that all 12 tribes were in Britain. And that's not true. They can't all be English. They can't all be Anglophones, Anglophones, English speakers. 
This is found in Revelation chapter 7, where there is a sealing of each of the tribes. And then there is mention of an innumerable multitude, where we read, After this I beheld, after the sealing of the tribes, I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in her hands, and cried with a loud voice, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne, and unto the Lamb. These people were described as having washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb a little further on in the chapter. So, there might be a question concerning the identity of that innumerable multitude, but it should not be a question at all. As we read that same thing later in a chapter where it says, And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes? And whence came they? In other words, where did this innumerable multitude come from? Now today, the Judeo-Christian denominational answer to that, today the Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox answer to that, as well as the Protestant churches, would be, oh, they came from all the Gentiles, the non-Israelite people, the other races. That's not true. That's not true at all. Here we have an elder asking, ostensibly an elder of the children of Israel, asking, who are these people in the white robes? And where did they come from? And it says, I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said to me, These are they which came out of the great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, throughout the Old Testament, only the children of Israel were prophesied to undergo tribulation. And for that same reason, only the children of Israel were promised to be cleansed in Christ. And this verse here in Revelation chapter 7 should be cross-referenced with Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 11, and Jeremiah chapter 33, verses 7 and 8, which I will exhibit momentarily. The sealing of the tribes in Romans chapter 7 was related to the fall of the Roman Empire. So it assures us that at least a certain number of each of these tribes is going to survive the fall of Rome. But these that wash their robes in the blood of the Lamb are the people that suffered in that tribulation. And they weren't sealed. They were meant to suffer in that tribulation. So we read in Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 11, For I am with thee, saith Yahweh, to save thee, though I make a full end of all nations where I have scattered thee. So we can't interpret Revelation chapter 7 to be people from any of these nations that he would make a full end of. Yet I will not make a full end of thee, but I will correct thee in measure and will not leave thee altogether unpunished. 
That is a prophecy of the tribulation which the children of Israel were told that they would have to undergo. Then in Jeremiah chapter 33, verses 7 and 8, And I will cause the captivity of Judah and the captivity of Israel to return, and will build them as at the first. And I will cleanse them from all their iniquity. That's the washing of the robes in the blood of the Lamb. And I will cleanse them from all their iniquity, whereby they have sinned against me. And I will pardon all their iniquities, whereby they have sinned, and whereby they have transgressed against me. It's those two passages to which Revelation chapter 7, in, in verses 13 and 14, should be cross-referenced. Now, there are other passages which are just as relevant with, to which... Those, those verses could be cross-referenced, but they should definitely be cross-referenced to these two passages. So that is also a digression. But the point is that of the tribes of Israel, Ephraim and Manasseh were distinguished, but that in the last days, the children of Israel would be found in many different nations speaking many different languages. However, with all certainty, all of those nations would be of the same general race, which happens to be the white race. As we have illustrated throughout the series of discussions, if one Israelite nation can be shown to have been white, then according to the word of scripture, they all must be white, without exception. And uh and Europe fits this perfectly, right? You, you can even trace all the European languages back through, um, you know, Latin, Greek, uh, Phoenician and Hebrew, essentially. And um, if they're all speaking different languages, then, then how can the Jews who are a mixed race, who all speak the same language, right? They all speak, quote unquote, modern Hebrew. How can they be the many nations of different tongues, right? It just doesn't add up. Well, well, right, it doesn't add up. The Jews have spoken a common language ever since their diaspora or diaspora, or however you want to pronounce that word, ever since their scattering. But the Israelite diaspora, the children of God were already scattered, according to John chapter 11. The Israelite scattering occurred with the captivities of, of the Assyrians and Babylonians, where the Jewish diaspora started, according to the Jews themselves, in 70 AD. And that's found in Jeremiah also. That's prophesied in Jeremiah, and Christ quoted that prophecy in Jeremiah, where Jeremiah divides the people of Judea into two groups, good figs and bad figs. And Zedekiah, the king of Judah, and his princes, and the residue of Jerusalem that remain in this land, and them that dwell in the land of Egypt, I will deliver them to be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth for their hurt, to be a reproach, and a proverb, a taunt, and a curse in all places where I shall drive them. Now, what people 
have been a reproach, a proverb, a taunt, and a curse. Throughout history, everywhere they have ever traveled. There's only one people that that description fits, and it just happens to be Jews. And Christ himself had referred to that passage. He, he was basically paraphrasing that prophecy when he said in Luke chapter 20, Luke chapter 21, where he was speaking about or prophesying the destruction of Jerusalem 40 years before it happened, he said, for these be the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. And he went on to say, speaking of the people of Jerusalem, they shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive into all nations, and Jerusalem shall be trodden down by the nations. It should say by the nations. So those people led away captive into all nations in 70 AD, which were the Jews, that was the vengeance of God against his enemies, in part, which was prophesied in Jeremiah, where they were going to be led away captive and, and be a, a reproach and a taunt and a curse everywhere they went. The history of the Jews and their own admissions of that history proves that they are the bad figs of Judah. And they were bad figs because they race mixed. And that could be established in Jeremiah. And they race mixed with the Edomites and the other Canaanites. So they're the bad figs of Judah. And that's, a, that, that's also a digression. I'm sorry. We should probably get on to Ephraim and Manasseh. Unless you have anything else to add. No, no, that's what they would always hide, right? They, they claim that... Um... The dispersion of the Jews was when uh, the deportations to Babylon happened, and they'll never go back on the 70 AD and link it to that class. But it's so clear when you truly understand it that they have fulfilled that prophecy. And, you know, they were kicked out, is it 200 times for that reason, that every country just wanted to get rid of them? Well, right. If they were good figs of Judah, they wouldn't have become a reproach, a proverb, a taunt, and a curse wherever they are, because instead, they would have fulfilled the blessings to Judah. They have not fulfilled the blessings to Judah. Instead, they're a taunt and a reproach and a curse and a proverb wherever they go. So they, that identifies them, just their history identifies them without question as the so-called bad figs of Judah, the figs that they were, were so evil they couldn't be eaten. The beginning of the fulfillment of the blessings for Ephraim must have been found in the divided kingdom, which was first ruled over by Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. He is called an Ephrathite, which in scripture has either one of two meanings. It could refer to the ancient name of Bethlehem in Judah. So, for that reason, it was also given as an appellation to David. Or it could refer to a descendant of Ephraim. Since Jeroboam lived in Zereda, which is a town of the tribe of Manasseh, he was certainly a descendant of Ephraim, so that's why he was called an Ephrathite. 
he was succeeded by his own son, Nadab. So Ephraim ultimately became the leading tribe of Israel in the divided kingdom. But the next king, Basha, and his son Elah after him were of the tribe of Issachar, not of Ephraim. After them, there is no mention of the specific tribe to which any of the other kings of Israel had belonged. A few can be assumed or conjectured from the place where they were born, but that the place where they were born isn't necessarily a proof of what tribe they are from. And we see that right in the history of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat. He was an Ephraim, he was of the tribe of Ephraim, but he was from a city in Manasseh. But in the books of the prophets, especially throughout Isaiah and Hosea, and also in Jeremiah chapter 31 and in Ezekiel chapter 37, in the prophecy of the two sticks, which is an important prophecy, and in Jeremiah chapters 9 and 10, in all of those places, the name of Ephraim became synonymous with the northern tribes of Israel. While Judah, in that same sense, had included the tribe of Benjamin. So in many prophecies, Israel is referred to as Ephraim, even if those prophecies seem to have included the people of Judah who were taken along into captivity by the Assyrians. And we can never escape notice that in the Assyrian captivity, 46 fenced cities of Judah were taken captive by the Assyrians. And they must have included some of the fenced cities of Benjamin, because the Assyrians took places in Benjamin, such as Jericho, which was a city of Benjamin, for example. So, as for Ephraim and Manasseh outside of Palestine, the first known settlement is that of the Dorians who became Greek. The Dorians didn't start out as Greeks. They became Greek. When Homer wrote about the period of the Trojan War in his Iliad, he never mentioned Dorians as he described all of the tribes of the Greeks and the tribes of Europe and Anatolia, which were known to the Greeks. Strabo, the geographer, and this isn't in my notes, but it's in papers at Christagenia. Strabo, the geographer, who was a, a, a remarkable historian of the first century AD, he actually wrote a history of Assyria, which is lost to us. It's gone. In addition to his geography. <clears throat> So Strabo considered Homer to be the beginning, referring to Greek literature and learning. He considered Homer to be the beginning in reference to geography. He mentioned other geographers who came before him, men who traveled around the world and described everything they saw and all the people they met, what tribes lived in what places, what cities they were in each place, that that was Greek geography. And in that sense, Strabo was a geographer. So there were several geographers before Strabo, and most of their works did not survive. But Strabo himself considered Homer the beginning of, 
in reference to the geography of Europe. And Homer described all of the nations of the Greeks, the tribes of the Greeks, and the people surrounding Anatolia and, 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 and Greece. So we can't imagine, and, and mainstream academics today, they do imagine that terms like Danans and Achaeans are just general terms which Homer used to describe the people of Greece. But that's not true. They were particular tribes of Greeks. Achaea became known ultimately as a portion of Greece, a name for a district of Greece. But that's not the meaning that it bore when Homer used it. So Strabo considered Homer the beginning of that, but Homer never mentioned in all his description of the Greeks and the Trojans and the other people of surrounding nations and which nations did not participate or which nations participated on which side of the Trojan War. He never mentioned the Dorians at all. And the Dorians became a powerful tribe among the Greeks. So how could Homer not mention them in the Iliad? And, and the answer is quite simple. They weren't in Greece and they weren't in any of the regions around Greece. Later, in his Odyssey, Homer, and, and the Iliad is the story of the build-up to the Trojan War, and it described a lot of the events of the Trojan War, but it fell short of describing the fall of Troy. The Iliad does not describe the fall of Troy. The Odyssey is the story of one man and his trials and travails in getting home. And it's the story of Odysseus. And if I remember correctly, the Trojan War was described as being like 11 years and the Odyssey maybe nine years. I might have them backwards, right, in memory. But Odysseus was away from home for 20 years. Half of that fighting the Trojan War and half of it trying to get home and being led this way and that way by the seas. He, he keeps trying to get back to Ithaca, which was actually on the other side of, of Greece, I believe on the southwest coast. It was an island on the southwest coast where, where of course, Troy would be across the agency northeast of Greece. So he had to get to the Adriatic side. So in his Odyssey, Homer only mentioned the presence of Dorians on the island of Crete. In book 19 of the Odyssey, Homer put these words into the mouth of his title character, Odysseus, as it is translated by A.T. Murray in the edition published in the Loeb Classical Library, and it says, in part from Book 19, there is a land called Crete, in the midst of the wine-dark sea, a fair, rich land, begirt with water, so it was an island, and therein are many men, past counting, and ninety cities, and they have not all the same speech, 
but their tongues are mixed. There dwell Akahians. There great-hearted native Cretans. There Kidonians, or Sidonians, if you want to pronounce the C as being soft in English. And Dorians of waving plumes and goodly Pelasgians. That's the only place Homer mentions Dorians. As it is explained... So, Bill, that implies that the Cretans were there and that the Dorians... Sorry, the Cretans were the natives there and the Dorians had arrived. Well, at least they weren't native there, right? Right. They couldn't have been. The Akahians weren't natives. The Kedonians weren't natives. The Pelasgians weren't natives. They were all Greeks. They, they were all from other places. And the Dorians were not natives. And that's the only place that Homer describes them. As it is explained in later Greek literature, not later, not, not of a later time than Homer, but writing Greek literature writing of a later period. A couple of generations after the Trojan War, the sons of Heracles were driven from the Peloponnese, which was occupied by the Danans. So, in revenge, the Heraclidahi, as they were called, left, and sometime after, they returned with the Dorians, who then invaded the Peloponnese by sea, and conquering it, either drove off, destroyed, or enslaved the Danans, who had driven off the the sons of Heracles, the Heraclidahi. Now this, in my opinion, is a fable which represents a greater truth. Heracles was a Phoenician. He was related to Europa, the, the Tyrian, right? I think he was a nephew or a son in, in different myths. There's a different relationship, so I can never remember it nephew, son, brother. He was a male relation that was quite immediate to Europa. So, if Heracles is a Phoenician, we have to look for the source of his name in a language which was spoken by the Phoenicians. That's what I would think, right? So, with the definite article, ha, is the definite article in Hebrew. It's the letter hef. The term rakal is a verb which means to go about. And with the definite article, ha rakal in Hebrew can be an explorer. It can be the explorer, the one who goes about. Or it can mean the merchant, as it is in Ezekiel chapter 27, verse 3. It's translated as merchant. And ha-rakalim is the plural form of that word. The merchants, or the explorers, those who go about. In later Greek myth, Heracles was a Phoenician who was known for his great explorations. 
there are books written about the travels of Heracles. Perhaps the legend represents the exploits of the Phoenicians, and it is they who encourage the Dorians to invade the Peloponnese. That may be conjecture, but that's my theory about the origination of the word Heracles and the development of the myth surrounding Heracles. That's my theory. Bill, um, I just had a question. When, um, If you remember in Odyssey, there's a bit where Homer says Aeneas and the Trojans were the most beloved by Jove, you, you know, the most beloved race, as, as you know, that they were blessed by Jove. Is it actually Jove he writes there, or is that just somebody's translated it as so Jove and it was actually Zeus he wrote? Yes, I, I that don't would know be... if you would know off the top of your head. No, that would be Zeus in Greek. And a lot of the... Right, and some translators just put Jove there then. Yes, some translators... I mean, Latin, all through the Middle Ages, Latin was the language of scholarship and the language of the universities in Europe. You had to. You could not go to a university in Europe unless you could read and write in Latin. So privileged young men, I call them privileged because education is something which is very expensive. Privileged young men or gifted young men who who were um, who had patrons, but you had to be exceptionally gifted as a young man. If you were poor and exceptionally gifted, perhaps you could attract a patron. A man of a, a wealthy man who is not related to you, who would support you, so that you could get an education and become a a teacher or or a a writer of or an, a scholar of one sort or another. Right, gifted young men could do that. They could get patrons to educate them. So that was probably rare, but it happened. <clears throat> so. You would have to learn Latin at a very early age to read and write it in order to get into the university. And they didn't have the structure that we have today where you go to school for nine years to elementary school, if we include kindergarten, which is a relatively new invention, and four years to a high school that's 13 years of school before you enter university, which is totally useless. It's totally useless, but we have that structure because we want to please our corporate masters and make sure that we are all thoroughly indoctrinated and make good employees for our corporate masters. That's why we have this modern academic structure that we have now. School is wasted on most people. Most people only need four or five years of school to learn the basic elementary arithmetic and, and spelling and reading that they're going to use for the rest of their life can be learned in four years. In ancient times, a young man went into the university. He already could read and write in Latin. He already had basic reading and, and communication skills and arithmetic skills. And he would apply by interview 
to try to get into a university and if he was accepted he was a teenager he was between 6 13 and or 12 and 16 years old typically to get into a european university all throughout our history until the last 100 150 years when it suddenly shifted and and we had this public education system based on this false structure that I know most of the people that I know personally did not need more than four or five years of school to acquire the skills that they've used for the rest of their lives. How many of us need algebra? Never mind calculus and trigonometry. How many of us are ever going to use algebra, calculus, and trigonometry throughout our lives after high school? None. Just a few computer programmers, graphics designers, mathematicians, engineers, how many others? None. The typical corporate employee, a salesman, why does a salesman have to learn calculus? Or, or, or foreign languages. How many of us actually, how many of us took French or Spanish for two years in a British or American school, which we were required to take to graduate high school, how many of us took that and ever used or spoken Spanish or French after school? It, it's just a party novelty when you're in your 30s if you could remember a few words from high school Spanish. It, it's a conversation item at, at parties. That's all it is. Some of us yeah, might imagine, need Spanish. Im, imagine we actually studied Hebrew or Latin or Greek, right? That would, that would be more useful, right, in terms of biblical knowledge. Right. Absolutely. It would be much more useful. But you only learn those languages or you only have an opportunity to be introduced to those languages because you don't really learn them in a seminary. Just in a seminary, if you're going to enter the seminary and get a degree in theology, then you've, you've had courses in Greek and perhaps also in Latin. Other than that, you, you, don't need those, that, you don't need those, but if you wanted to study scripture, they would be a lot more useful than Spanish and French. Yes, that is true. They, they'd and, and probably Bill, be a lot did, more useful did, anyway. Did Homer originally write eight poems, was it, but only the Iliad and Odyssey um, survived, but we know little snippets that people have quoted in, from the others, right? In later um, Greek literature, how we know certain events in the Trojan War. But he did originally write eight epic poems, right? Yes, he he wrote. I don't know if it was eight. I I, I never counted, but he wrote several more epic poems than the Iliad and Odyssey. And and in the Iliad, the Iliad stops short of the fall of Troy, in the Odyssey, the famous Trojan horse is only a one-line or, or two-line memory that is mentioned by Odysseus, or in relation to Odysseus. The Trojan horse is just a memory, and it's just recalled in a couple of lines, and that's it. Yeah, it was his idea, wasn't it? Yes. So, Concerning Dorian origins, they invade the Peloponnesus by sea a couple of generations after the Trojan War. Even Thucydides thought that they came from the north. But that's just conjecture. 
their cities, they were Dorian cities that were established in the north. So perhaps for that reason, Thucydides thought that they came from the north, but that is just conjecture. Homer didn't mention the Dorian cities of the north, even though they were in Greece, in Epirus, I think. I, I could be wrong. All of the theories concerning the origination of the Dorians are conjecture and are not supported by ancient witnesses. I should say all of the popular or academic theories. Rather, the Dorians are called by that name because they had come from Dor in Palestine, an Israelite city in the land of Manasseh. And that might be dismissed as conjecture, but we can substantiate this. We have in the book, the, the first book of Maccabees, as well as in book 12 of the Antiquities of the Judeans by Flavius Josephus, we have a letter which was written from a Spartan king to the high priest of Jerusalem. And we're going to read the text of the letter. It was probably written not long after 180 BC, maybe about 175 or 170. And it's recorded in Whiston's translation of Josephus. So it, it's also in 1 Maccabees, but I'll cite Josephus. Arius, king of the Lacedaemonians, to Onias sends greetings. Now, Lacedaemon, or Lacedaemonia, as it might be pronounced in English in some schools, Lacedaemon was a district in the Peloponnesus, and its capital city was Sparta, but on later maps, it was often called Laconia, rather than Lacedaemonia, or Lacedaemonia. Laconia, on a lot of modern maps. Arius, king of the Lacedaemonians, to Onias, sends greetings. We have met with a certain writing, whereby we have discovered that both Jews, or Judeans, and the Lacedaemonians are of the same family and are derived from the kindred of Abraham. It is but just, therefore, that you, who are our brethren, should send to us about any of your concerns as you please. We will also do the same thing and esteem your concerns as our own and will look upon our concerns as in common with yours. Demodeles, who brings you this letter, will answer. Will bring your answer back to us. This letter is foursquare, and the seal is an eagle with a dragon in his claws. Well, when the letter arrived in Jerusalem, Jerusalem was in turmoil in its wars against the Syrians, the Seleucids, the Greek rulers of Syria. So it never really, and for that reason, this letter may have been written a little later. It may have been written as late as 165 BC. But for that reason, it wasn't answered for several years. It wasn't even answered while Onias was the high king, was the high priest. The Onias of this letter is the high priest at Jerusalem. And, and because of the structure of the Second Temple period, he was basically the political leader of the people of Judea as well. 
which the high priests were all throughout the Second Temple period until the Romans came. So he never answered this letter because Jerusalem was in turmoil when it was received. Ancient Sparta was the chief city of the Dorians of Lacedaemon, the district in the southeast portion of the Peloponnese, although originally it was a Danon city, and as I couldn't come up with the name last week, Menelaus was its king, right, in the Trojan War period. It would be incredible if it were true that the Judeans were actually Jews, for the mighty and noble Spartans to associate themselves in this manner. But the truth is that the Israelites were white and the Spartans had no qualms about associating themselves to the Israelites in this manner. The Spartans were a very proud people. They wouldn't claim descent from Abraham lightly, unless it were true. They would have had to believe that it was literally true before they wrote that the Lacedaemonians and, and the Judeans are of the same family and are derived from the kindred of Abraham. While the Greek and Dorians were indeed a great nation, they didn't persevere. And the Greeks of today are not Dorians, unless there is a small remnant which may have somehow survived. You wanted to say something. And built, yeah, sorry, I was just going to say, unfortunately, none of the Dorian writings survived, right? It'd be fascinating to read all their history, right? But only the uh, Athenian-type stuff. As you said last week, only that's kind of survived, the Ionian perspective. Right, and, and very little of that actually survived, but we have a great body of it. I mean, the body of literature we have from ancient Greece is significant, but it's nothing compared to what they produced. If, if you read Strabo or Diodorus Siculus, these men did not just pull stories out of the air. These men were... Diodorus Siculus wrote up until about 35 or 34 BC, I believe if memory serves me correctly. So he was alive in writing at the assassination of Julius Caesar, and he wrote his histories extended for about 10 or 12 years beyond that. And then he ended them, or perhaps he died. Who knows, right? We don't know. But most of his books, not all of it, most of his books of history survived but there are large portions that didn't. So, Strabo also, in his geography, we have eight books of his geography. Eight volumes. And they didn't all survive. There's eight Loeb Library volumes. It goes up to book 17. What survived from Strabo's geography? are found in those 17 books in eight volumes from the Loeb Library. So, Diodorus Siculus is, I think it goes up to book 40 of his history. And what survives of his 40 books, book 40, yes. What survives of those 40 books, I don't remember if it, it, if it 
ended at those 40 books or if there were books beyond that were, that were lost. I don't remember, honestly. What survived of those 40 books are found in 12 low library volumes. There's a lot of places in the middle where entire books were lost, where we have fragments from other writers who had quoted those books, and the fragments are assembled into a collection and published with the rest of the work that did survive. And it's the same thing with Strabo. There's a lot of Strabo in those 17 books of his geography. There's a lot which is missing, but which is reproduced from fragments from other writers. So we don't have the complete Strabo or the complete library of history from Diodorus. But Diodorus wrote up until about 34 BC. Strabo is believed to have died around 25 AD. So he followed Diodorus by about 50 or 60 years in his writing. So both of these men are from around the same time. And if you read one of these works, and I did that in a couple of editions of Strabo, in a couple of my volumes, I had written in the fly cover every ancient author which Strabo mentioned in some of those books, right? Not all of them. Just to get a list to see that the... Because when you just read through a book, you don't really get a good grasp on all of the sources that the author had used. So if you list all the sources, as he mentions them, there's a huge list of authors that he would quote or cite in just one book of his geography. So this man must have read all those authors. Back in those days, they didn't have indexes. Today, we have index researchers. And they make a lot of mistakes. When you're an index researcher, you make a lot of errors because you don't get everything that the author said about a particular subject or about related subjects by which you could better understand the particular subject. So it's not good to be an index researcher. It's a lot better to just sit and read the book. You could claim to know a lot about Herodotus from reading the index, but... In the end, you're shortchanging yourself if you don't read Herodotus. So we're actually missing. If you look at that list of authors that I compiled from a couple of books of Strabo, some of them survive, and many of the names will be familiar, but there's an incredible number of them whose works are totally lost. But Strabo had them in the first century, and they're gone today. Much of our history has been flushed down the toilet of time. Much of it. A great amount of it. And of course, Strabo would only cite or explain from the ancient authors he wrote what was important to him. If we had those authors for ourselves, we may find a lot of material that's more important to us. And it's the same with Diodorus, and it's the same with any of the ancient learned writers that they all cited copiously from sources older than themselves. And Josephus does it. He relies on the works of men who were long before him to create and construct his histories. They all did it. That's another digression. I'm sorry.
So the ancient Greek Dorians were indeed a great nation, but they did not persevere. But they certainly may have been one fulfillment of the blessings to Ephraim and Manasseh. However, that was not the ultimate fulfillment. And this too is evident that these blessings, all of them, may have had different fulfillments in different ages throughout history. Perhaps Asher dipped his foot in olive oil in 600 BC, but perhaps he dipped his foot in petroleum in, in 1800 AD or, or 1900 AD, right? I mean, we really don't know because we can't identify Asher today, even though some of the older Christian identity authors had, had associated Asher with certain nations in Europe. I can't accept that. And they never come up with the same conclusions anyway that they have subjective interpretations of um, banners and flags and insignia and things like that, heraldry. But most of that heraldry was developed in, in the Middle Ages. It wasn't brought all through time by these tribes. In fact, in Hosea, it's indicated that the children of Israel would forget their heraldry. They would forget it. Let me find that. Hosea chapter 3, verse 4. For the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king, and without a prince, and without a sacrifice, and without an image, and without an ephod, and without teraphim. Now teraphim are idols and images, family idols, insignia, images are, are could be pillars or stumps, but they're really um, idols and images made from those pillars or stumps. These are the insignia of the nation that the children of Israel are going to be without for many days. And they were. And the heraldry that we see today, the, the insignia, the flags, the symbols, they were all developed in the Middle Ages. They weren't carried with Israel all throughout history. So if we see a man on a flag, we can't identify that nation with Reuben as, as, by magic, as if it magically, the, the descendants of Reuben 2,000 years later came up with the same symbol that represented Reuben 4,000 years ago or 3,000 years ago. We can't make that assumption that that's what happened. Some tribes seem to have retained certain symbols, but those tribes seem to have been from the Phoenicians who didn't go into Assyrian captivity and who did maintain a good amount of their heritage with them in the later times. So to that, I would attribute perhaps the red hand of Judah in, in Scotland and Ireland, for instance. But even those symbols, the people that carried them, forgot why they carried them. There's also another um, symbol I noticed in, in Ireland. Um, you, you have that um, that there's in. I'm trying to think. I think it's the in in the, on the island of Ireland in the southeast. 
there, there was a people called the uh, people of the deer and, and they arrived quite early. I can't remember the kingdom name and they had a picture of the, was that the Phoenicians or, you know, you know, is it related to that or is it just a coincidence that um, was it Naphtali would be a hind let loose and you wonder, is that evidence of Phoenicians? But we'll never know, right? It's just going to be an assumption. Right. It can seem to, it, it can seem to be evidence, but, We'll never really know. And another symbol that was brought are cherubs. Cherubs were found by archaeologists all throughout Iberia. That There are many examples of cherubs that have been dug out of the ground that probably date to the 5th century BC or perhaps even earlier. Some of those cherubs are, are featured in an article on the Phoenicians at Christagenia. There's probably three or four. So the cherub actually traveled with the children of Israel to a certain point, and ultimately it was forgotten as a symbol, because we didn't manufacture the same cherubs throughout history. We have these artifacts that were dug out of the ground, though, that associate the people, that, that can be used to associate them with the Phoenicians and, and ultimately the Israelites, because that was their symbol. The cherubs on the Ark of the Covenant and the cherubs which were engraven on the walls of the temple, that they were sphinx-like creatures with, with the head of a man and the wings of an eagle and the forefront of a lion and the hind quarters of a bull. And those four symbols are the symbols of the chief tribes of Israel around the that were arranged around the tabernacle of, of the wilderness, they were the f symbols of Reuben, Dan, Judah, and Joseph. And that's what the cherub represented. So they were atop the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, that's a digression, but that's an important point is that there's all sorts of archaeology archaeological discovery which supports our his assertions about scripture and history there's the i think it was amesbury amesbury archer i'm searching google now i think it was amesbury i'm not completely positive there was a place in britain where the body Yes, the Amesbury Archer was found, and an early Bronze Age man. And he had all sorts of accoutrements, which can be identified with the Phoenicians, and even with Egypt, I believe. It's been a long time since I've read about this archaeological finding. It's on Wikipedia as Amesbury Archer, but I read it in archaeology archaeological journals 25 or 30 years ago i don't know a long time ago right probably probably 25 years ago or, or at least 20 so this amesbury archer the, these modern archaeologists are are in a quagmire as to how he could have gotten in britain but there was steady travel and exploration and trade between Phoenicia and Britain at an early time. 
His tooth enamel suggests that he originated from an alpine region of Central Europe. I, I don't agree with, with, with that at all. His accoutrements are much more important. The items that he was found with are much more important. I would have to dig out the original archaeological article that I saw this in, which I still have somewhere, I'm sure. It was a lot more complete than this Wikipedia article which is terrible. Okay. I'm pretty sure that's the finding I'm referring to, though. The Amesbury Archer. It could be something else I remember, but I'm pretty sure it's that. The Israelites taken into captivity were ostensibly from every tribe of Israel. Even some of the tribe of Dan went into Assyrian captivity. And I made the mistake of following Compare in that area years ago, which I have to amend Compare claimed that Dan never went into captivity. And, and if you read the books of Kings and Chronicles, you might arrive at that conclusion. But if you go back into Judges chapter 18, chapter 18, verse 30, in an, in, an, an obvious interpolation, which shows that the book of Judges was also redacted by scribes at a simple temple period, it actually says that Dan would, I'm going to pull up the passage because I didn't put it in my notes. I'm sorry I didn't now, but the passage actually says that the children of Dan, it described that their false religion they established in Laish, when they had taken Laish from the Canaanites, and the king, that the priest that they set up, and the children of Dan set up the graven image and Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Manasseh, he and his sons were priests to the tribe of Dan in Laish until the day of the captivity of the land. And that must be a reference to the Assyrian captivity that was added to the book of Judges in the Second Temple period. It has to be. So there was no other captivity of the land that, that could have been referenced in the context of that passage. So even Dan went into captivity, at, at least portions of Dan. And Compare was wrong about um, that. Bill, sorry, um, other versions say it's son of Moses, not Manasseh. Do, do you know which one is right, sorry? I would actually have to hope that this survived in the Dead Sea Scrolls and also compare the Septuagint, and the Septuagint says Moses. So, that there, there could be other men named Moses, right? This doesn't have to be yeah. a relationship to Moses. But what's strange is that the Septuagint Greek, I, I would have to see the manuscript that Brenton had actually used Evidently, there's two versions of the Septuagint of Judges, and one version says Moses, and the other version says Manasseh. So there you have it. Brenton, in his English, say, has Manasseh. Moses' grandson went off into adultery. That's very quick, isn't it? Sorry. Judges chapter 18, verse 30, is at a time far past that of Moses' grandson. 
Moses' grandson would be long dead by the time of Judges chapter 18, verse 30, unless he lived like 400 years. Yeah, okay. My point is that elements of all 12 tribes of Israel went into Assyrian captivity. Elements of all 12 tribes of Israel were probably already overseas with the, the Phoenicians and the Dorians and the other voyages and, and colonies and settlements of Israel. But that can't be proven in Scripture. We can only produce what we actually have citations for in order to explain what we can't prove it of all 12 tribes, right? But we can show that all 12 tribes went into Assyrian captivity. But the Hebrew word, egel, E-G-E-L, is the way it's transliterated by strong. It's Strong's number 5695 and 5696. And even the Greeks had pronounced their G, their gamma, as we would pronounce the letters NG, the diphthong, in a lot of their pronunciations, even though they don't have the N. And, and where you see a double G, the lexicons inform you that it should be pronounced as an NG. So that Greek word that I would pronounce agalos, A-G-G-E-L-O-S, which is an angel, a messenger, that's why it's angel in English, because the Greeks would pronounce it angelos, right? So that N was often added before a G sound, in words from one language to another, that Hebrew word egel, E-G-E-L, means calf. But also, according to Jesenius's lexicon, which is a lot more detailed than the simple lexicon in Strong's Concordance, in either form, masculine or feminine, it's a steer or a heifer. So, this is, in my opinion, the source for the word angle, describing one of the more powerful Germanic tribes of Northern Europe and the tribe for which England was named, as well as many towns and places in Germany, like Ingolstadt, a city in Germany. And there are several of them with, with, which bear this name, Angle. So, in Deuteronomy chapter 33, we read of Joseph in the blessings of Moses that his horns are like the horns of unicorns. With them, he shall push the people together to the ends of the earth. And they are the ten thousands of Ephraim, and they are the thousands of Manasseh. So, so this is one of those um, subjective clues that we were speaking about. This word, Egel in Hebrew being a calf, becoming the name angle for the angles. But that's my opinion. Yeah, and that would mean that England means people of the uh, land of the bull and English people of the bull, right? Well, well, England is symbolized by John Bull. And, and we have the word Angus in, in Scottish. I, I believe that's actually considered a Scottish word. But the Picts who make up much of the, the population of Scotland, came from Scythia. They would have had similar language. 
So, so we have Angus Cattle, and then representing England, we have John Bull. So, I don't know how John Bull came to be the the, the name of the little man that rep, that was the British counterpart to Uncle Sam in nineteenth century literature. I don't know how that came to be, but it, it's to to me it can be indicative of what I'm saying. It, it doesn't have to necessarily be a proof. It's subjective. It's a subjective interpretation, but it's certainly indicative. And we have that word Angus, Angus of cattle, which to me helps prove a link between this word, this Hebrew word, Egel, and angle. To identify the fulfillment of the blessings which Jacob had imparted to Joseph, in addition to the later blessings upon all 12 sons, Genesis chapters 48 and 49, we have to identify a people descended from Israel who became not only a great nation, as perhaps the Spartans or the Romans once were, but also a company of nations which became spread out to the ends of the earth. So, returning to a discussion of England, the first British, as we know the British, seem to have been the Phoenician miners of tin in Cornwall. Whether they were preceded by Japetites or others can only be imagined or conjectured from archaeological findings. Very often, Predecessors are not ancestors. That there's no solid evidence very often, or any evidence at all, that people that were in a place before you are your ancestors. Predecessors, we shouldn't take it for granted that predecessors are ancestors. So there may have been people in Britain at an earlier time than the Phoenician miners of Cornwall, but that doesn't mean that they were the ancestors of those Phoenician miners when we have definite records of wave after wave of invaders then we can't dig a body out of the ground that we might be able to prove is 10,000 years old and imagine it to be an ancestor that's ridiculous that's a childish view of archaeology in the face of which is contradictory to history there was a British writer, E.O. Gordon, who once argued for a Trojan presence in Britain based on thin archaeological evidence. But that I would like to one day revisit. I would like to read his book again. I haven't read his book since perhaps 1997 or 1998. But clearly, in my opinion, the account of Brutus the Trojan found in the Aeneid of Virgil seems to be political propaganda justifying the failed attempt of Julius Caesar to conquer the island while the Romans were successful under Claudius 90 years later. After the Phoenicians, the Kimri invaded Britain, perhaps sometime around 400 BC, as the Cimmerians and other tribes of Scythians, later known to the Greeks as Galatahi and to the Romans as Gauls or Germans, had migrated from Asia through the Danube River Valley and then into Gaul, northern Italy, and the Rhineland, 
Concerning their invasion of Rome, the invasion of Rome by the Galatahi, around 390 BC, the Roman historian Livy referred to them as a strange new race. They were previously unknown to the Romans, ostensibly because they were newly arrived from the east. The name Kimri seems to be a shortened form of the Greek word Kimeroi, the Latin Kimerians. During the first wave of the migrations of Scythians from Asia into Europe, when the Greeks had first encountered them, they learned their identity when the Assyrian language was the lingua franca of the East, with which the Greeks were also familiar. So the Greeks called them Kimeroi, after the Assyrian word Kumri. Their form of the name of the Israelite king Amri, after which the Assyrians had called the Israelites. Later, so, so what I'm saying is that, the, that these Scythians, because they're Scythians, the Greeks later called them Scythians, these Scythians start to come into Europe from Asia, and the Greeks want to know who these people are, and they learn from the Assyrians that these people are the Cymri, and therefore, the Greeks called them Kimeroi, which is a, a Hellenization of the Assyrian word Kumri. So they were called Kimerians by the Romans because the Greeks called them Kimeroi. Later, in the Babylonian and Persian periods, the Greeks called subsequent migrations of the same people by the name Sake or Saka. It's a plural, it's a representation in English of the plural form of the word saka in Greek, right? Sake, S-A-K-A-E. And the Greeks called these subsequent migrations of the same people sake after the Persian name for the Scythians. Because in the Persian period and in the Babylonian period which preceded it, Aramaic became the lingua franca of the East, the common language of trade and diplomacy, supplanting Akkadian, which was the Assyrian language. The Greeks also called the Saka Scythians, which was apparently a name they learned from the tribes themselves, because there's no other possible etymology for it. And even later, the Greeks called them Galatahi, a word which first appears in literature in the 4th century BC, and there's no explanation for it. It was used by Aristotle, and then it was used by Polybius, who was a historian of the 3rd century BC. But in my opinion, the name Galatahi seems to have come from the Greek word for milk, which is gala, as Homer had mocked the Scythians, for being milk drinkers. Interestingly, the word gallus in Latin is a bucket, and we would use a bucket to fetch milk from the cow, right? So that's a conjecture, 
but it's to me it's an interesting conjecture that the um the Greek name Galatahi and its derivation from milk is also just a conjecture in my own opinion that is my opinion I don't know if anybody else wrote it in the past but it's very clear that Homer mocked the Scythians for being milk drinkers. He called them mare milkers, and he used other derogatory terms for to describe them living on their flocks and drinking milk as one of their primary foods. So it's my opinion that that's where the origination of the name Galatahi is. However, there's no other explanation for the origination of the name that I've ever seen. And that name was clearly used in the 4th and 3rd centuries by Greek writers for the people whom Homer was writing about in the 7th century and, and whom other historians in the 6th and 5th centuries in that time frame called them Saka and Scythians, but not Galatahi. All of a sudden, in the 4th century, they start to be called Galatahi. And it's the same people that were previously Sakae and Scythians and Chimerians, or Chimeroi. The names of the Chimeroi, Sakae and Scythians, can be linked together in multilingual Assyrian, Aramaic, and Persian inscriptions, where it is indisputable that these terms all refer to the same people. While on modern maps, and you can find this right on Wikipedia, right? And it's ridiculous to me. On modern maps, Scythia is pictured north of the Caspian Sea. That is a misrepresentation. Herodotus wrote about Scythia in his own time, and he went to a Greek settlement on the Danube River, far north of Greece, the Danube River empties into the Black Sea, and Herodotus visited a settlement there and observed the Scythians who dwelt in the region and referred to the land north of the Danube as Scythia. And that's in the 5th century BC. So the Scythia pictured north of the Caspian Sea is a misrepresentation on Wikipedia. Not that that land was also known as Scythia, it was. But Scythia, in the mind of these ancient Greeks and, and in the mind of these ancient Greek writers, Scythia stretched all the way to Germany. So that should be how Scythia is pictured in ancient times. Among both ancient Greek writers and in medieval times, Scythia stretched into Europe. And what we know as far as what we know as the eastern portions of modern Germany. I have a lengthy explanation of that in my essay, Classical Records in German Origins, Part 3. From the time of Tacitus, who referred to them as Caledonians, the Picts were known to have crossed over to Britain from Germany. To describe that same thing, the 8th century church historian Bede, the 8th century 
British church historian used the term Scythia. I should actually call him an English church historian because I believe he was a Saxon by race, if I'm not mistaken. Bede used the term Scythia. He said that the Picts came into Britain from Scythia, where Tacitus said they came into Britain from Germany. So what I'm saying is that to Bede, in the mind of Bede and other medieval writers, Scythia was synonymous with Germany. The 8th so century. In the Scottish Declaration of Arbroath, when it says we came from Scythia, they just mean Germany, right? Right. Exactly. But I believe that the Declaration of Arbroath is confounding the origins of two separate people as if they were one and the same. So it says that they came from Scythia through Ireland. <laughs> and that's not necessarily true. I mean, it might be true in part, but it's not necessarily true the way it's worded. Let's put it that way. The 8th century British historian Nennius described the Anglo-Saxon invasion of the island as coming from Scythia, where he wrote, in part, and, and this is paragraph or chapter 37, and this is available at Christagenia, but Hengist, in whom united craft and penetration, perceiving he had to act with an ignorant king and a fluctuating people, incapable of imposing of opposing much resistance, replied to Vortigern, We are indeed few in number. Vortigern was the British king, and Hengist was the one of the leaders of the Anglo Saxon invasion. So Hengist replied to Vortigern and said, We are indeed few in number, but if you will give us leave we will send to our country for an additional number of forces with whom we will fight for you and your subjects. Vortigern enlisting the help of the, originally, of the Angles and Saxons. Vortigern assenting to this proposal, messengers were dispatched to Scythia, where selecting a number of warlike troops, they returned with 16 vessels, bringing with them the beautiful daughter of Hengist. So Germany was considered to be a part of Scythia by, or Scythia by medieval British writers, by Bede and by Nennius. So the Angles and Saxons, of them, many stayed behind and helped develop modern Germany. They weren't the only Germanic tribes to assist in, in the development of modern Germany. And of course, for centuries, they all fought with one another. But they, many Angles and Saxons stayed behind, while others, a significant number of others, had migrated into Britain. And according to Bede, they lived alongside the earlier British. They didn't drive them out. Other accounts assert that they drove out all the British into Wales and into the northern parts, but that's not true. According to Bede, that's not true. 
Yeah, I think they all they, all the tribes got mixed up. That there would have been some tribes who wanted to maintain dominance of the early British, and maybe they got pushed more into Wales because they they wanted to rule Britain. But I imagine a lot of the colonies just mixed with the invaders, right? And I I, I imagine a lot of um, people in like in England, you know, like London area are actually descended from the British and a lot of people in Wales are descended from these invaders. So it's all mixed up, even if they think that they're Welsh or they're English, it's all mixed up, right? That's what I believe. Yes. At that early time, that regional prejudices may have existed for one cause or another from an early time where most people were British or most people were Angles or Saxons. But it it seems to me that, according to Bede, who actually lived in the 700s, in, in the 8th century AD, only perhaps 200 years after the invasion or, or 300 years after the invasion of the Angles and Saxons, which I think was around 450 AD, if I'm not mistaken. So 300 years later, I think Bede would know, as he said, that there were towns and villages of Angles and Saxons that were very close to other towns and villages of, of the British, the, the older British tribes, and he spoke about them as neighbors. Now, a lot of those British tribes were Kimri, who came from the same place, had the same path into Britain as the Angles and Saxons, but perhaps as many as seven or eight hundred years earlier. The What afforded the ability, in my opinion, of the Angles and Saxons to invade Britain was the fall of Rome. So when Rome fell, she could no longer defend her territories. That's why the Angles and Saxons invaded. They wouldn't have that wouldn't have been that would have been a lot more difficult for them. Just like an invasion of Italy would have been a lot more difficult for the Goths if Rome hadn't become so decadent and basically imploded. It was no longer able to defend itself. Yeah, it's it's astonishing people don't look and see how um you know, like Caesar and and even before that, how just a few legions they just massacre two hundred thousand Germans invaded, and then later they can't do it anymore. They have to. They base all their army essentially was um, Spaniards, Franks, Goths. They they had to hire the Germans to defend their own territory. Clearly, there was something going on with the racial genetic structure in Italy that they couldn't raise legions anymore. In other words, they were all a lot of them were bastards now, right? If you have to use Germans to defend yourself when for only 300 years, they're, you know, a small Roman army is just battering German armies, you know, five times the size, right? As long as they're in an open plain and not in the Tudorberg forest, yes, but where they could fight with their, with, with their native tactics, that their, their tactics were extremely effective. And they had superior, far superior equipment because they had superior metallurgy. They had su superior metal making skills and superior iron ore deposits to what the Germans had available. So with, be, between their tactics and their equipment, the Germans were, the Germanic tribes were no match for the Romans.
none whatsoever. We have several points of discussion here. The great nation and the company of nations, Ephraim and Manasseh, which we believe represent, at least early on, Britain and America. And that might be debatable. Traditionally, identity Christians have perceived England to represent Ephraim and Manasseh, the original colonial Americans. It's obvious to me that elements of all 12 tribes must be in America today with all of the immigration we've had outside of the British Isles and Germany. But the original colonial Americans, there were some French here, there's no doubt, there were French in various places, but the original colonial Americans were primarily from the British Isles and from Germany. And most of them, most of the Germans were from the Rhineland portion of Germany because that had been devastated in the Thirty Years' War. And it's still not recovered by the time Germans began moving to America. In in fact, I have a book somewhere in my collection. I'm actually looking for the book because my brother asked to see it um, six months ago. And I haven't found it yet because I still have six or eight crates of books that are unpacked from when I had to move after the hurricane three years ago, right? So I'm looking for this book, and it's the Book of Names. And there are apparently members of my own family who came over over 100 years before my family, speaking about my Fink family, had come here. And they came from the Rhineland. They had the same name. They were the same villages of the Rhineland that my family came from. That they, they, that there were about ten or twelve thousand German families that came here, that were granted land by the British Queen Anne, I believe it was, in upstate New York, in the Mohawk Valley. And there's a book, which was written by a by. by It's a collection of records, which was actually written, it was assembled from the records by a Scotsman, and it's called the Book of Names, and I have a copy of it, it was, the copy I have was published in the late 1800s, early 1900s, I don't remember, and it has all of the names that are from the records of those families that came over here from the Rhineland, and it said that they were looking for land outside of Germany because of the complete devastation of their homes and their villages in the Thirty Years' War. So that drove a lot of German settlers from the Rhineland into America. They, Queen Anne, I believe the book represented that Queen Anne almost gave them land elsewhere, but settled on upstate New York. And they received a large patent from her. So a lot of um a lot of Germans came over here with William Penn and settled in Pennsylvania. They were the Pennsylvania Dutch, which they're not Dutch, they're Deutsch, they're German, right? That that's a confusion in English. They're not from Holland, they're from Germany. Those Pennsylvania Germans, in turn, spread into Virginia and as far south as Texas and as far west as 
Wisconsin and the North and South Dakota. And there were also many other waves of Germans after them. So America was settled. The colonies, Pennsylvania, Benjamin Franklin wrote that Pennsylvania was in danger of becoming a German language colony. And, and that went to a vote, what would be the official language of Pennsylvania, and that English won by a thin margin. So that's how many Germans were in Pennsylvania in Benjamin Franklin's time, the 1700s. I always had, had a, um, I mean, in Palestine, in the ancient land of Israel, we see the land of Manasseh on both sides of the river. So I always had a pet theory that perhaps America does represent Manasseh because the settlers had come from both sides of the channel. Now, that is also conjecture. That's just conjecture. It's not a proof of anything. But this company of nations seems to describe the British Commonwealth. And America is a great nation. And we should probably pick up on that conversation when we return with the next segment of these presentations. Yeah, yeah, sure. And I was just going to say how it makes sense that um, it says that, I can't remember the exact number, right? The translation, the, the is it the ten thousands of Ephraim and the thousands of Manasseh? That, that seems to indicate Ephraim would spread out more, but then once Manasseh got settled, they, they uh, increased and multiplied exponentially, and, and they didn't want to be under Ephraim anymore. They wanted to have their own United States of America, right? And, and of course, I imagine all the 12 tribes came with them as well, right? But that essentially was Manasseh's country, along with the 12 tribes. It was the new Jerusalem. Is, is that in the prophecy, right, Bill? Well, well, that is highly arguable, but Jerusalem is used prophetically to describe the, the capital seats of the children of Israel in prophecy, regardless of where they are. It, it's Jerusalem prophetically is used in the words of the prophets to describe not the capital city of, of ancient Israel, but the just like Zion is used to describe, it's a mountain in Jerusalem, but it's used prophetically to describe the body of the children of Israel as a whole, no matter where they are. And Jerusalem is used in that same way, prophetically, to describe the capital cities of Israel, wherever they are. It doesn't matter. And, and sometimes, like... Christ had said to the Judeans that the, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given unto a nation bearing its fruits. In the books of the prophets, it says that the kingdom would come to the daughter of Jerusalem. So the, the kingdom of heaven is transferred from ancient Jerusalem to wherever the daughter of Jerusalem is, that word daughter was used of colony cities, of cities that had come from a people who migrated to another place. Carthage is the daughter of Tyre. And that's how that term is used in, in scripture. I'm going to look for that passage. It's in Micah chapter 4, verse 8, and we're going to get to that in our next presentation.
because there's an important prophecy there that describes the migrations of the children of Israel that supports what we're saying here of Britain and America representing the fulfillment of the prophecies concerning Ephraim and Manasseh. So that'll be a good yeah, yeah, and there's also, I'm sorry. I see in the notes you've also said is... Uh, is there any relation with Judah and Germany? It, it's interesting that Germany took the whole of Europe and it was only the, the British and Americans who could take take them, right? That Ephra, there, there was always this um, rivalry between Joseph and Judah, right? Yes. So, so that's an, a fascinating thing, right? And we'll discuss that next week. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Thanks for having me, Bill. Praise Yahweh, God of Israel, God of the European race. Thank you. Peace out,